Oh, we've been working our way through First Samuel now um, over the course of several months. I'm looking at this, this book, which is a, a theological history, right? It's telling the story of Israel leaving the judges period into um, a monarchy for the first time. It's set roughly 3,000 years ago, right? And so we've had some hurdles um, to, to jump through with, with the fact that it's an ancient book, that the culture is different than us, that the, the nation that we're dealing with is different than us. Um, and, and, but one of the things I appreciate is that Scripture doesn't um, try to baptize every moment, right? It, it shows the, the good and the ugly, um, because its overarching purpose is telling us the story of God and how His promises um, are, are faithful and how they come to be. And we see um, the broken players in the midst of it. Um, right, knowing that there's there's place for us in that too, because we also um, are, are broken players who are being redeemed and restored by a faithful God. And so, most recently, I'm kind of to, to set the scene. Um, king Saul, the first king of Israel, um, is in charge. He's still living, and he has been hunting the next king, who is not of his lineage, David. Um, and he's been he's been hunting him with with some level of just insanity. Um, David hasn't sinned against Saul, but Saul is ravaged with jealousy and has and knows that, that David is going to be the next king. He's been anointed. And so David is, is waiting for that and in the midst um, has, a, has about 600 or so men accompanying him in the wilderness. Um, and he has been being put up with Saul trying to kill him, like literally trying to kill him over the course of... Um, of days and weeks and months now, I'm waiting for the Lord to uh, fulfill His promise to him. Last week we saw David nearly fall into sin um, as he wanted to take revenge for himself um, against Nabal in, th- in this kind of a side story that we had. So we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gabeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshulam? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill, which is beside, on the road on the east of Jeshulam. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. And David rose and camped, and, and David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was laying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. All right, so there's going to feel like a little bit of a repeat, right? That if, we, if you turn back just a couple of pages to chapters 23 and 24, we have Saul who has the Ziphites come and say, hey, we know where David is. Um, if you like, bring your army, you can have him. Right? They, they betray David. They go to Saul thinking that they'll be enriched by the king. Um, and as, they, as Saul is coming around the mountain, right? literally David and his men are going around one side. Saul and his army are coming around the other side. They find word that the Philistines are attacking. Saul has to leave and go tend to his kingly duties, and David escapes by, by a breath, really. right? And, and it's why we see him calling out as God is his rock and is a refuge. That a rock was literally a gift from God in that time place. And, and now here we are, um, a little bit later, 
And once again, the Ziphites are like, hey, we know where David is. He's still here. They go to the king, and the king again gets his same 3,000 men, and they go back out into the wilderness looking to find David. And if you remember when, um, when Saul and David had last interacted, Saul had said, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so we see just the back and forth of Saul and the fact that he is mentally um, in, just lacking stability. Um, we find that Abner, uh, we've met him briefly in chapter 14. We find out that he is actually Saul's cousin. Um, and, and here we are reminded that he is the commander of the army. Um, in chapter 20, he's, he's sitting next. He's like a bodyguard. He's sitting next to Saul at mealtimes when, when Saul goes into um, just a, a series of raids about his family turning against him. And so we see this scene where Saul is resting in the middle of a camp, which is on top of a hill, which is surrounded by his army. And the, the picture you're supposed to have here is Saul is very secure. Right? Like he's got high ground, he's in the middle, he's got the, the commander of the armies next to him, and then the whole army, the 3,000, right, are sleeping around him, are camped around him. So let's pick up in verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Who will go down with me into the camp, Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. And so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Right, And you just continue to see the similarities from chapters 23 and 24 when and there Saul has come into the cave to relieve himself and David has opportunity to, to kill him. And his men say, hey, listen, like, and they, they share kind of a prophetic word that was a false prophecy of, hey, the Lord, if he delivers him into your hand, you should kill him. And David says, no, I'm not supposed to do that. And here we see a similar scene, that, and I love just kind of the firsthand nature of this. Um, this is not Ahimelech the priest. This is another man by the name of Ahimelech, which is why it tells us he's the Hittite. Um, and, and Abishai is actually... David's nephew, we learn in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 16, that he says, hey, I'll go with you. And they sneak into camp amongst 3,000 men. And in, in the scene there, Saul is armed and ready, right? Like, like many folks today would, would keep maybe, maybe not a pillow under your pistol. I mean, a pistol under your pillow. I don't know. Some of you, I, I'm looking at some of you. You may actually have a pistol on your pillow, right? But... Right, people are armed and ready. They want something quick to defend themselves. That Saul has his sword. Oh my word, I can't talk this morning. Saul has a spear. Right, too many S's. 
has a spear stuck in the ground next to his head. Right? The idea is, is that he can jump up and grab that spear and he's ready to go to war. Right? It's a sign of his power. It's a sign of his authority. Right? And it's, it's stuck there and he's ready to go amongst all the layers of protection. And, and, and now there's almost this like tense and yet comic scene of David and Abishai standing there looking at him asleep. And Abishai's like, if you won't do it, I'll pin him to the ground. I don't have to hit him twice. Like his, his spear is here. He'll never know it came. Like if you want me to do it, I'll do it. Like listen, he says like he's, he's been given to your hand. We see the same opportunity and the same even kind of theological attempt to say like, look, look at what God has done here. Um, would we just take a quick aside here? I think sometimes we look at opportunities that are presented in life, and we look for signs. And, and one of the signs that might often we would look to see is God's affirmation that we should do something is a repeat opportunity. David has a repeat opportunity here to sin. It is not a sign from God. And he even has an, a different voice saying the same thing, right? That we might take a repeat opportunity with two different people saying the same thing to say, that must be from God. Would we not so quickly run to, to signs, right, as we would to what has God called us to? Right? What does the Scripture say, and what is the Spirit leading us to, and not assume that that second phone call that's offering the same position, right, or that second, like, that, that absolutely means it has to be from God. Right? That, that a missed opportunity here um, was not, he didn't miss an opportunity from God, right? He missed an opportunity to sin. Um, and so let's just, be, let's just be wise there in what we, what we assume is from the Lord. We see that the camp has, like, it, they're asleep, and it, it's a heavy sleep. Um, this would be reminiscent of, of Genesis 2, right? When, when God puts Adam into a heavy sleep, right, to take the rib to create woman. Or in Genesis 15, where, where Abraham goes into a heavy sleep, there, that's the same type of language. But there's God's hand is at work. There's just kind of this supernatural thing going, that they're there, that they're sleeping. And so they decide to take the spear. They decide to take the water. Um, and what we've seen is that David has learned from his, his near miss with Nabal. He says, listen, because God lives, listen, Saul is either going to die, or he's going to die in battle, um, or his day will come. It's not for me to take his life, right? Like that, that because Nabal had been struck by the Lord at the end of chapter 25 instead of the hand of David, right? That he has learned that lesson and is going, hey, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to take guilt upon myself. I'm not going to kill the Lord's king. The Lord is alive, and he will do what he wills with Saul when it's the right time. And so they sneak out, and they leave with a, with a pitcher of water and the spear. So let's pick up in verse 13. And then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. And as the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord. 
the Lord's anointed. Now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. All right, so again, now we have this scene where David has, has got made, made sure he's safe, right? He gets away, and he starts yelling. And, and you can imagine the, the commotion as Abner jumps up, and it's like, someone's yelling at me. They're yelling at the king, what's going on? And, and David, right? And so, it, so, so Abner goes, like, who are you? Like, who's yelling out, and who are you to talk to me? And who are you to talk to the king? Like, basically, like, in my pride, in my authority, in my position, you don't come, to, come at me. And he's, he's just come out of a deep sleep. And David, we see some humor here. And some, he's just, he's calling him to account. He says, are you not a man? He's like, which, right, is going to make Abner go, like, he's going to roll up. His blood is boiling. Who is like you in Israel? Like, you're the leader of the army. Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord, the king, right? You can imagine in this moment that Abner is quickly looking to make sure Saul's alive. Like, okay, he's alive, right? Like, and is imagining now, like, what is going on? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done isn't good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to, I mean, he is insulting him, saying you deserve to die. You haven't done your job. And you'll notice that Abner is silent. Why? He says, now look for the king's spear and the jar of water that was at his head. Basically saying, draw attention to his head. Because the spear that I could have stuck through it isn't there. The water is gone as well. This is no accident. And so Abner is, is silent. Let's pick up in verse 17. So Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, What does my Lord pursue, or why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out of this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and I have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. For the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me out of tribulation. And Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things, and you will succeed in them. And so David went away his way, and Saul returned to his place. So again, we have this scene where David is, is, is yelling at Saul from a, from a distance, right? And he's, he's saying, Saul, if I have done something, say it. Like if I, have, if I am guilty of something, I will make a sacrifice to the Lord. I'll ask for forgiveness. I will do what it takes to make it right with you. 
If my problem is from God, right? He's like, if, if I'm being punished because God is out to get me here, I'm willing to make it right. But if it's not, if it's, if it's people whispering in your ear, if it's you, like God is going to vindicate me. Like, so if you have something to say, say it now. Because he reminds him in verse 20, like this is beneath you. Like you're out here hunting as a, like a single flea, like you're trying to track down that one nuisance. Right? Like he's like, this is beneath you to be out here doing this. And we see again that Saul, and, and listen, we don't know the tone. Like if Saul is, is being kind of contemptuous and like, come over here, my son. I'll take care of you. Or if he really is that torn and tortured of like, he's reminded when he hears David's voice of the one who soothed him, right? With music. The one who's cared for him. The one who has won great victories and actually does have a, like, uh, uh, his conscience is pricked, right? Like, we're not sure. But when he says, come over and I will care for you, like, David's not a fool at this point. He's heard Saul say this before, and here we are again in the wilderness with 3,000 men once again hunting his life. Right? That he's not going to stand there. He trusts the Lord for his deliverance and his protection, not the king's lies or promises or maybe even good intentions. Right? He knows the king is prone to, these massive emotional swings. But it's interesting because he says, listen, um, like you, you and these men who are whispering to you and making you hunt me, they're pushing me out of God's promised land. They're pushing me out of the place that God has given us. They're pushing us out of a, out of a place of worship. Like you're, you're, What you're saying to me is go to another land and serve another God. And yet our God is the one true God. Like the, the nation of Israel is meant to be a light to the nations. They're meant to draw the other nations into worship because of how they follow and trust and reflect the character of God. And as, as the world sees His blessings upon them, His faithful care for them, that people will say, we want to know Him. Like that's the calling that Israel has had since God gave it to Abraham. And He says, but here you are and you're pushing me out. You're, you're sending me away to other places where false gods are worshipped. It's like you're saying, this God isn't for me. You've created a worship issue for me. So we're going to pick up, and in, in chapter 27 is, is only 12 verses. We're going to include that as well this morning. Look at verse 1. So David said in his heart, right in the aftermath of, of him leaving here, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achash, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achash at Gath, and he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinanam, of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So we see now a fulfillment of verse 21 of this, like you're pushing me out. I'm going to have to leave. And that basically David gets to a place, right, where he's like, nothing's going to change. You're going to continue to pursue me. I don't know if I can, can continue to provide and sustain some 600 plus people and their families, and their wives, in the wilderness. And so like chapter 21, he goes to Gath, 
to the, to the, air, the land of the Philistines, an enemy of Israel. And at that point, he tried to kind of just come in as a mercenary, ends up having to act crazy when he realizes that people recognize him and that he's probably going to die. And here he goes, right now a man of, of renown, one who would be seen as an enemy of Israel. He's, he's proven himself a little bit because Saul has been hunting him so long that now he walks in, he's desperate. And we're going to see that the, the king of Gath, Achash, is willing to bring him in because he's like, maybe I can use this guy. He's even got an army, right? Like he's, he, he has nowhere to go, and an enemy of my enemy, right? It's my friend. It's kind of what the king of Gath is thinking. So let's pick up in verse 5. David said to Achash, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. From why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achash gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gizrites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from, from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But he would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achaz. When Achaz asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jehemalites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so has David done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achaz trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. So, David and his army of 600 men are here in, in, in Gath and realize we're the enemy of this people. They're probably not real pleased with us taking their resources. And so he goes to Achash and he says, Hey, is there somewhere out in the country that you would just let us be? Um, right? Like, we'll, we will bring you payment, but will you give us a place? And so Achash says yes, sends him out to Ziklag, which was actually promised um, to the people of Israel. We see in Joshua. It's one of the places they had been given and had never taken um, hold of. And so he goes out and he's living in this place that had been promised the people of God, and he begins to make raids against the inhabitants, claiming the land that was meant to be theirs for generations, right? Like he's now taking it back. And what he's doing is he's, he's taking and he's, he's bringing back the spoil of it and taking that to Achaz to keep him happy and pleased. He's wiping out survivors so that no one can tell what he's doing. And when Achaz says, hey, where are you getting this stuff? He says, I'm going, against, I'm going into the wilderness, the desert. That's what Nagib means. And he starts naming like, places that would, would have been offensive to Israel. He's saying, I'm going against my own people. And he's not, right? He's wiping out the enemies that God has, has already told Israel to wipe out. And now here they are. And, and Achash is like, man, this guy is like, he's going to have to stay here. He can never go back to Israel because the king hates him. And now he's turned against his own people. And so we see David is playing a dangerous game, right? But he's providing for his men. 
He's got the king fooled, and he's not being hunted by Saul. Listen, we, we have to be reminded here that Scripture, we said this last week, we were going to say this a lot in Samuel, is not always saying, hey, here is how you should go and live when it's describing stories. Sometimes it's merely telling us what occurred. It's not affirming that that's what should have happened. Right? We should wrestle with some of David's behavior here. Right? Like, we should wrestle with, with the violence. We should wrestle with the lies. It shouldn't just be like, oh, okay, well, David is, is David, so he gets to do what he wants. Like, that's, that's, not, how, that's not how it works. Um, we see that he's there for four months, or sorry, a year and four months. Would, would you be encouraged this morning? I think some of us, like David had a clear calling from the Lord. He was anointed. He was promised the throne. He is now, not for a short period, been in a season of waiting that has involved a lot of difficult circumstances and trial. And what was promised to him has still not come to fruition. I think a lot of us can, we can relate and resonate with David here that we feel like God has told us something, called us to something, and that thing hasn't happened yet. Right? But a season of waiting doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Difficult circumstances, trials, crisis, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. That God is faithful to keep His promises. And, and, and so some of you may go, look, I've had, my life has been this. My life has been difficult. Right? It's why that we trust that the, the promises of God that He will say, that He will wipe away every tear from every eye. That there will be a day where we, the surpassing weight of glory that we will receive will make all difficulty in this life look like it pales in comparison. Not that it wasn't difficult. It's not saying it actually wasn't suffering. It was. Right? But it will pale in comparison to the promises and the fulfillment of what God has for us. And so if you're in a difficult season right now, if you're in a season of waiting, if you're in a season of going, this isn't what I feel like God has promised me, like you're in good, you're in good company. And God is faithful. One of the reasons that it doesn't just jump to us from Saul as king to David as king is it's saying, listen, there was struggle to get there. And yet God saw it through. He was faithful and just in doing that. And we've seen David... Um, trust the Lord. We've seen David need to be reminded by his community like Abigail when he was nearing sin that we need one another as we talked about last week. And so here's where I want us is, is we've looked at chapters 26 and 27. David has been tested in the wilderness. right? There have been trials in the wilderness. Twice he's had opportunity to kill Saul and has not taken it and, and looks just like he looks great in those moments because he's trusting the Lord. And we've seen him also nearly screw up with Nabal, right? Where Abigail had to remind him not to do it. He was tested. He had trials. The, the king is offering false promises and lies and assurances of protection and deliverance, right? That aren't true. That David is suffering. And he had opportunity to take the crown early. Right? Twice he has had the opportunity to kill the king. He's the anointed. God's going to give it to him and take it early. It was his, right? It belonged to him, God's promise. It was his for the taking. Saul would have not known, been any the wiser. He would have just been dead. And yet imagine the cost that would have been paid if he had taken the throne, the crown, by his own hand. 
Like how much more difficult would it have been to have led when he had blood guilt on his hands? It was going to be difficult enough as it is. And so we see him trusting God. Even imperfectly, we see him trusting God. Church, does your mind begin to stir and move to Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Jesus has trials and temptation and tests in the wilderness? Where false lies and promises made by our enemy are made to Jesus? Right? Listen to Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That we see Jesus in the wilderness with trials and temptation being tested, right? With an opportunity. Like, listen, it all belonged to him anyway. The devil was making false lies and false promises and false accusations of things that weren't really his to give. All the glory and kingdoms of the world are Jesus's. What was the what was the offer then to avoid the suffering? Jesus, just show them who you are. You throw yourself off the temple, it'll be clear who you are. Right? You have all their glory and honor now. Listen, we would have paid the cost then. Because Jesus, it was his to take. It was his. But if he would have avoided the suffering, if he would have avoided the cross, then we stand guilty before God this morning with no hope, with no peace, with no opportunity to be right with God. And Jesus would still be Jesus because it was his. But instead of avoiding the suffering, instead of taking the crown early, he leans into it. We see him even in the garden before the cross going, God, is there any other way? This is hard. But not my will, but yours be done. I can trust. And where David trusted imperfectly, Jesus trusted perfectly. And in his life of obedience, in his death, carrying the weight and the guilt and the shame, and the punishment and the wrath of God on our behalf, for our good and for God's glory, that he's then alive. Listen, David was exiled into Philistine for a period, right? Feeling like I've been removed from the place of God. Jesus was exiled, he was forsaken by God on our behalf. He was removed for us. And then when he 
walks out of that tomb three days later, having beaten sin and Satan and death. The crown was his, which it had always been, but his enemy had been defeated because he hadn't taken a shortcut to the crown, and we are the beneficiaries of that. We gain from that. And so when David says, look back in chapter 26 and verse 10, David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Right? He said, listen, the reason I cannot... I can get away with not killing Saul today is because God's alive. And he will take care of what he's going to take care of. He says it again in verse 16. Right? This thing you have done is not good when he's talking to Abner. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Like He's basically threatening him, saying, like, God is alive and he'll deal with you. David acts according because he believes that God is alive to act and is in control to work and to move for our good and our benefit. Church, because He lives, because He didn't stay in the cross, because He didn't stay in the tomb, we need to live and act accordingly. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning in verse 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Church, Jesus is alive this morning. Like That is not just intellectual fact. That, that is truth. That He continues to hold everything together. That He knows the, the, the sin in your life. He knows the, the places of devotion in your life. He knows your struggle and your fears and your doubts. And He understands it because He's been betrayed too. Right? He's gone through suffering as well. And so when you pray in your heart, you cry out saying, God, I don't understand. He hears those prayers. He receives them. It's why we have, when we, He says we have access to the throne room of grace, it is such a big deal that we get to walk into the presence of God in prayer. That we are called to obey Him, to walk with Him, to hope in Him. It's the reason that we pray for folks who don't yet know Jesus, because we believe that God can touch hearts in ways that we can't. It's why we pray for those who are bound up in sin right now, right? because God brings hope and peace and freedom and transformation right? that we can't. It's why we trust Him in the midst of waiting in difficult circumstances. Because He's done it. He sees us. He knows us. He understands us. He is waiting to receive you one day to fulfill all the promises and to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what you were called to as a grandma, as a dad, as an employee, as a man, as a woman, as a... Like you followed and trusted me. Walk into your reward. Church, it's why when difficult circumstances come and we say He's Emmanuel, God with us, that we're not forsaken, it matters. It's because He's alive. This isn't just intellectual, like jumping through hoops, trying to convince ourselves of something to feel better. It's not a mantra. Jesus is alive. It's why He's speaking to, to many of you right now, calling you through His Word and through His Spirit, confirming that you are His, or that He is wooing you to know Him. And so, 
We want to offer all of ourselves as worship because He lives. He is worthy of it. In Psalm 139, David writes and says, Where can I go from your presence? Like, I can't. And he basically starts going, I can't, I can't, There's nowhere I can go that I can get away from you. And he's not saying it as an accusation of, like, like you might to your kid. Like, I can't get away from you in the house. Like, you're always with me. Right? He is saying it as, There is nowhere you're not. When he was exiled out of Israel into the Philistines, God didn't abandon him. Worship didn't cease. He learned that there was nowhere he could go that God wasn't. Church, Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all of our lives. So would we be a people and a body and a family that would run hard after him, not attempting to earn something, but because we have been given what we could not have obtained on our own. That's how we just want to know him, trust him, and worship him with all that we are. That's, that's the calling that's been given to us. And that's as we look at David in this in 1 Samuel, when we recognize that God lives, and that he's at work for our good, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. God, we, we want to say thank you for things that we know to be true, but we so often take for granted. God, you're alive. And so would we pray as though you are listening? Would we sing as though you are listening because you are? God, would we wait and trust knowing that you are with us because you are? God, would we not just go through the motions? Would we not just know the right things? But would we live in light of them? That you are alive and you are good and you are faithful and you are with us. God, for those this morning who who don't know you, who haven't trusted you, who aren't following you, God, would you just call their name? Would Would you just speak to them and ask them to trust, follow, to believe? And God, would they do that? God, we all need you. Father, even in this moment, would you be showing us how we could live differently this week in trusting that you are alive? Would you speak? Would you encourage? Would you comfort? Would you call? In Jesus' name.